Io pensavo che ci avrebbero portato nei campi di lavoro. They were going to take us to work at the labor camp and that we would then get together in the evening with the family. We never thought that they would take us away and separate us from wife and four children without seeing them again, without saying goodbye, without a kiss to the children, nothing. We left them just like that. And from that day onwards, we never heard anything again. You're listening to For the Living and the Dead, Traces of the Holocaust, a podcast brought to you by the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure. I'm Katharina Freise. In each episode, we tell the story about an object which tells us more about the Holocaust. In this episode, we will talk about the unique discovery of 33 vinyl records, a hidden treasure in the archive of the Jewish Contemporary Documentation Center, SEDEC, in Milan. They contain recordings of interviews given in 1955 by six of the only 16 survivors of the rounding up of the Jews of Rome on 16 October 1943, the infamous Black Saturday. The voice you just heard was that of one of the survivors, Cesare Di Segni. These very early testimonies of the Holocaust were found by sheer accident by Laura Basso, head of the archive and digital library of the SEDEC Foundation. I'm joined today by Laura, who will tell us more about her extraordinary discovery and about the story of Cesare and Lello Di Segni, father and son, who gave account of how they survived the Holocaust. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Katharina, for having me. Laura, can you tell us a bit more about this amazing discovery? Mm, we were in the very first phase of the moving of our archive to a new venue, and I was opening some old boxes and folders to check their content. And uh, one of these boxes, without any label, captured my attention. And when I opened it, um, I immediately recognized the typical paper record covers. Um, the one with the hole in the middle that allow you to read the, the label, you know. And there were three vinyl records, black, still shiny, um, and that's it. That's the amazing discovery. And did you immediately understand what you had found? Um, I would say yes and no. Uh, yes, because the handwritten labels on the disc gave me immediately a clear information about the content. Uh, indeed, it read, Centro di Documentazione Ebraica Contemporanea, 16 of October 1955, Interviste Reduci, that in English sounds like interviews with veterans. Amici, abbiamo voluto chiamare qui, avanti a questo nostro microfono, alcuni di coloro che catturati il 16 ottobre We have asked some of those captured on October 16th who returned from the concentration camps to join us in front of this microphone. They are here to tell you about that day in Rome and from this to tell the whole world because what they suffered is not the tragedy of the Jews but of the entire human community, of every civilized individual worth of this name. Non è la tragedia degli ebrei, ma di tutta la comunità umana, di ogni individuo civile degno di questo nome. 
Um, about this label um, and about the use of the word veteran instead of survivor, which is much more familiar to us today, um, I think it's relevant to highlight that at the time of this recording and even afterward until uh, the 80s, at least, uh, um, the word uh, veteran was used to indicate people who came back from the war, no matter if they came from extermination camps or labor camps, if Jewish or political opponents. They all indistinctly uh, were people who survived the war. Um, it's just a detail, but I think it tells us something about the mentality of that time, uh, about the perception of the, um, the Jewish survivors uh, immediately after the war. Coming back to the main point, um, the information on the label that we archivists would call metadata uh, allowed me uh, to look for details about possible events organized in Rome in October 1955. I looked through our archival documents as well as the Jewish news newspaper of the time and in the end uh, some elements came out. I was able to reconstruct the framework in which these recordings uh, were made and why those discs recorded in Rome were afterwards sent to the newborn Centro di Documentazione Ebraica Contemporanea in Venice at that time. So in the end, um, I had enough clue to understand what I found, even though I didn't uh, I didn't know anything about the real content of those discs. And for this reason, I would answer to your initial question with no, I didn't immediately understand what I found because only after the digitalization of the disc, I was able to listen to the recordings and only at that point I was able to identify the number and the name of the people interviewed. And at that point, I realized that uh, we got uh, a little bit treasure in our hands and that for decades we kept it on our shelves without no one knew anything about it. Um, sometimes it happens that you know that something exists, you don't know where it is or where to search for it, but you know that it exists. This case is different because no one has ever looked for these recordings and no one, look, and no one has ever looked for them um, simply because no one has ever had a clue of their existence. Do you remember what you first felt when you heard these six survivors tell their stories, when you listened to these voices from the past? For my job, I'm used to scroll down names in data about these people every day. I have information about their tragic experiences and losses through databases, uh, through written testimonies when I'm lucky, or accounts from someone else. But hearing their real voices, hearing their real voices was like when you suddenly see a pure written name becoming a living person. A person with his voice, uh, with his own emotion, and not those that you imagine he has when you read a, a testimony. The tone of the voice is what uh, mostly strikes you when you listen to these interviews. 
and they don't tell us anything new about the dynamic of the arrest in October 1943, but they definitely tell us something about the moment, the historical moment in which they were recorded. They help us to better understand the atmosphere of the Italian society dealing with Holocaust survivors immediately after the war. And if you listen to these interviews, uh, you will notice, for example, that the word Holocaust is never used, or that in a couple of questions the interviewers refers to Auschwitz like uh, stay. I think that in details like this, it lies the real value, the core value of these interviews. We already mentioned Black Saturday as a key historic date, but can you tell us a bit more about what life was like in Italy leading up to this date? The things change, becoming terribly worse in September 1943, with the armistice between Italy and the Allies. Uh, the armistice and the consequent Nazi occupation of central and northern Italy opened the tragic phase of the assault on the Jewish life with arrest, with massacres, deportations. And the so-called Black Saturday was one of the events of this second phase, one of the most tragic events of this second phase. More than 1,000 Jews, uh, mostly living in the ancient Jewish ghetto of the city, were rounded up in the early morning of the 16th of October, 1943. And they were gathered in a building, the Collegio Militare, used by the Germans as a transit prison. And they remained all locked up there for a day and a half. And then the, uh, the 18th of October, they were all deported to Auschwitz. Men, women, uh, children, sick and old people, all of them. Of the deportees, only 15 men and one woman survived. Six of these 16 people were interviewed on these vinyl discs. A particularly striking interview is that with the father and son, Cesare and Lello Di Seni, who both survived, though not together. Abbiamo qui con noi il signor Cesare Di Seni, accompagnato dal figliuolo Lello. Scusi, signor Cesare, è stato preso a Roma lei. Laura, what is their story? Cesare Disegno was a peddler, a door-to-door salesman. He lived in Rome, in one of the narrow streets of the ancient uh, Jewish ghetto. And he lived there together with his wife, Enriqueta Zarfatti, and with their four children, Grazia, Mario, Angelo, and Lello. Um, they were a modest but decent family, like many others in the ghetto. In 1938, the racial laws changed their life because Cesare lost the possibility to work regularly and uh, his oldest children, Lello and Angelo, uh, were both expelled from the public school. And from that moment, the whole family depended on the little jobs that Cesare and Lello were able to get day by day. In October 1943, uh, when they were arrested, Cesare was 44 and Enrichetta was 40 years old. 
Um, as for the children, Lalu was 16, Angelo 13, Mario was 8 years old, while the youngest Grazia was 5 years old. We actually heard from Cesare at the beginning about what they expected might happen to them on the morning of the raid. In his testimony, Cesare remembers that the night before the roundup, they heard some bombings, some machine gun fires. They didn't think in any way that those fires could be the announcement or the premise of the roundup. They didn't expect in any way to be arrested and they didn't expect that women and children would be also taken away. Um, Instead, he says, uh, they took women, children, sick people, no distinction, no pity for anyone. While they were detained at the Collegio Militare, Cesare thought that they would take men to the labor camps and that they would rejoin the rest of the family by night. But it didn't happen that way. Indeed, when they arrived at Auschwitz, the family was separated. Cesare and Lalo were chosen for forced labors, while Enriqueta and the three youngest children, Grazia, Mario and Angelo, uh, were selected. Um, they were taken straight to the guest chambers. And Cesare says, uh, I couldn't say goodbye to my wife. I couldn't kiss my children. They separated them from me. And from that day, I have not heard anything more about them. What happened after that? Cesare and Lalo were put in quarantine for several days. And after that, they were both taken for forced labors. Cesare was sent to Javishkovitz, a subcamp of Auschwitz, where he worked in, in, in coal mines. He remembers that one of these was uh, uh, 300 meters deep, and it was so low that he had to work on his knees most of the time. Lalo instead was taken to work in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he stayed there for uh, about one year. After that, he remembers that he was moved to a camp in Germany. He doesn't mention the name of this camp, but we know that it was uh, Dachau. Uh, as far as we know, Lalo was liberated in April 1945, and he was able to come back to Italy in uh, June of the same year. As for Cesare, um, he was liberated at the end of January 1945, and through the testimony of another Italian survivor, Giacomo Pavoncello, we know that um, immediately after the liberation, Cesare was, uh, in, was in the transit camp in, installed by the Russian in Katowice, um, uh, on the same days uh, uh, as uh, Primo Levi. He was together with Primo Levi in Katowice. And they both uh, came back to Italy in October 1945. Because death had spared me, when I came home and opened the door of the house, there were only tears. For about two to three weeks, I cried every night 
because I found my place, my room always empty, where I used to be with my family, with the children. It was my whole life, until one day I surrendered myself to fate, and until today I still surrender to fate. It had become obvious that fate had reserved that pain for me, and I have borne it with resignation. You just heard again from Cesare. He speaks about how he returned, what he felt. Do we know how father and son found each other again after their return? Lello and Cesare came back, each on their own, and at a different time, and neither of them knew anything about the other. Lalo came back to Italy in June, and he went to Milan, where he found an uncle. He stayed at his home for several months until he received a communication from Rome about the coming back of his father Cesare. Uh, it, it is not very clear by their testimonies uh, when uh, exactly they met. But anyway, they both remember that when they met, they embraced each other and cried together for a long time. Cesare also remembers that when he came back, he found himself alone. Uh, he found his home empty of people, of things, of everything. And that for this, he cried every night for weeks and weeks. And do we know at all what happened to Cesare and Lello after 1955? We don't know very much about Cesare after Auschwitz and after his first and probably unique interview given in 1955. As far as we know, uh, he came back to his ordinary life. In 1961, he has been able to see Lello getting married and he was also able to, to meet uh, Lello's son, uh, Roberto. As for Lello, uh, once he returned from Auschwitz, he kept going with his father's activity as a peddler in the first time and as a shopkeeper afterward. Uh, he gave his testimony uh, as a Holocaust survivors in 1955 and uh, again in 1995. Uh, Cesare died in 1978, when he was 79, while Lalo died in 2018, uh, when he was 92 years old. Laura, what is so unique about these early testimonies? I don't know if unique is the right word. Maybe the question is, what makes these interviews uh, so interesting for us today? And I think this is the simplicity and the freshness of the talk of the witnesses. Um, they are not giving a message to future generations. They are simply talking about their personal experience with no special emphasis. They sound, um, they sound unaware of their role as Holocaust survivors. Um, they give the impression, to me at least, um, of individuals lucky enough to resist the extermination camps and able to come back to their own life. 
And is there a difference between how these interviews sound and those testimonies that were recorded much later on and are in fact still being recorded? There is a, a significant difference in my opinion. The interviewers look like having very basic knowledge about the Holocaust. In approaching the interviewees, they sometimes say, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm sorry to ask. I'm sorry to talk about events that had caused and are still causing painful feelings. In closing their interviews, uh, we hear from them words that sound like, it was a tragedy, an, unfor an unforgettable tragedy, but now move on. Uh, that are all words and feelings that in more recent interviews no one uh, would dare to use or suggest to embrace to a survivor. The interviewees, on the other hand, sometimes sound incredulous that someone is interested in listening to and even recording uh, their tragic stories. Uh, they look aware that people around them normally prefer to look ahead instead of backward, to forget instead of remembering. In more recent interviews, survivors are totally aware of their role in society as witnesses. They are aware of being the keepers, the guardians of the memory of the Holocaust, and they feel the responsibility to keep alive this memory for future generations. And they have the right, the right words to do it. Laura, as a Holocaust researcher and archivist, what does this discovery mean to you? This discovery, the story of this disc, uh, tell us how much our perspectives um, could change during the times. Uh, when those discs were archived in 1955, those interviews uh, probably had a not so relevant significance or uh, anyway, uh, a limited significance for the people of that time, so much so that they could be completely forgotten. Um, today we are astonished that this uh, could have been happened because every voice, every sentence coming from, from the past uh, represents a little treasure for us, uh, represent a further way, a means to better understand the mentality of the people of the past. And through the mentality, also the events of the past. And how is being part of AWI important to your work? Um, for a little institution like mine, being part of AWI represents a significant opportunity. Working side by side with other institutions involved in the same field, facing the same problems and ups, and confronting each other to find out together possible solutions. I think that the sharing of issues and experiences is the added value of being part of large, of large networks like uh, uh, ARI. Uh, from another point of view, ARI is giving new inputs to Holocaust research and studies that um, I think no one of our institutions on its own uh, could give. Um, ARI represents a way of reconnection, 
uh, both for uh, scattered uh, documents and people and institution. It's a way to break up borders uh, and to think differently about the enhancement of our research. Lord, that was a fantastic ending to the podcast. Thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing the story of your amazing discovery. You've been listening to For the Living and the Dead, Traces of the Holocaust, a podcast brought to you from the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure. I'm Katharina Freise. If you'd like to know more about the work of the European Holocaust Research Infrastructure, you can find us online at eri-project.eu. That is e-h-r-i-project.eu. ERI is funded by the European Union.